There's no space that his love can't reach. There's no place where we can't find peace. There's no end to amazing grace. Take me in with your arms spread wide. Take me in like an orphan child. Never let go, never leave my side. side of the of the chorus you're on right there because we've we've said before that you can you can sing it in two ways i am as in god god who calls himself i am is holding on to you in the middle of the storm or we're declaring that god we're holding on to you in the middle of the storm so as we continue to sing this morning i just want you to be encouraged to know that hey if you're holding on to god he's not going to run from you he's going to stay right there and you know what if you're having a hard time in the storm or when the waves are rising God, the great I am, is holding on to you, and he won't let go.
God, Father, we know that just because it's life, Lord, we'll be in the middle of rising waves. God, I pray that our eyes would be locked on you. God, let our vision just stay right on you, God, so that we have your perspective. And Lord, whatever's going on around us, Lord, we know that it's nothing compared to your power and to your might and to your glory, Lord. But what's important, Father, is we just stay on you, stay fixed on you, Lord.
Your God. 
God, we are so excited for that day that we finally get to meet you face to face. Lord, and see our Savior coming through the clouds. Lord, make us ready. Help us to stay ready and keep our eyes on you. Lord, we thank you for the promise and the hope of your return someday. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Southfield. Uh, On your way in, you should have received a folder. The inside of that folder was a card. Go ahead and fill out that card with as much information as you're comfortable filling out uh, so we know you're here, so we can update any information that may have changed. And also, there on the, if you flip it to the back side, we've got a couple of things for you. So if you're still interested in getting baptized with us on August 2nd, more than happy uh, to, to oblige that. So we've already had a couple classes go off, uh, but if you, if you missed those and you'd still, you know, you're still thinking about it, go ahead and mark it down so we can get you some information and um, help you get involved in that really special day. There's also a spot for prayer requests. Whether it's good or bad, let us know. Uh, again, we emphasize family, uh, and that family connection here at Southfield. So we really want to be praying for you. Whether it's good or bad, you know, if we, we want to be there for you. So go ahead and use that opportunity uh, to, to fill out any prayer requests that you have. Now, you'll notice that Dennis is not here this morning. Although he was here at about 4 a.m. because he woke up and, uh, again, his, he was supposed to take a day off today, but he came in and beat everyone to setting up the chairs on his own and doing other things around the building. Uh, now, that's not how I spend my days off, but, you know, he does his thing. But since he's not here now, we do have the pleasure of hearing John Beaker again. Uh, he opened up our series on the Summer on the Soul, and he's going to close up the, the guest speaker section of it. And again, John is someone who I've gotten to hear my whole life. He's probably right behind my dad in the um, sheer quantity of Teaches that I've heard, uh, I've heard more of him than just about anybody else. Uh, ranging from mega campouts to all kinds of goofy stuff like Professor Beaker and all kinds of really cool stuff. So we have the blessing of hearing him today. Uh, and again, uh, hopefully he doesn't wear the Professor Beaker wig. Uh, but either way, uh, I'm, we're in for, for a really good uh, treat here. Before he gets rolling, he does have something that he'd like us to discuss. He wants you to turn to the person next to you and talk about something that you failed at. John is giving us a really uplifting message today, and he wants us to start off by talking, by really dogging us. And, you know, so again, uh, whatever you've failed at, feel free to share that uh, with the world, all right? So go ahead. We've got about 45 seconds on the clock, uh, and share something you've failed. I can tell you something right off the bat that you failed at right now. We were supposed to keep that to 45 seconds and you just kept going. So just add that to the list of things, right? So no, you actually, you guys actually did better than the first service. So I'm going to take advantage. Now, a long time ago in a land not so very far away, I went to college. I know that's hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe that it was a very long time ago, but it's true. I'm one of those University of Illinois guys, so don't throw anything, but, uh, but it's true. Electrical Engineering 497, Random and Stochastic Processes. I still don't know what that means. I was there for, in my graduate school days, uh, this this was the most difficult, most infamous class uh, that was out there, and it was kind of well known that you shouldn't take it in your first semester. But being one to not take good advice, I decided that it would be a good idea. I would take the hardest class first, and it would be fine. So I got into it. Four weeks in, four weeks in, I took the first test and bombed it. Bad. It was not a good situation. So as any good student would do, I decided I would redouble my efforts. I would uh, make sure as soon as the homework was assigned, I would start it right away. If the professor had office hours that he was holding, I was there first in line. I even got so crazy that I decided to crack open and read the textbook. I mean, you know, I was willing to try anything at this point, anything to just be able to pass this class. So the second test came along, and I was ready. I mean, I I really did the best that I could to prepare for this test. And I bombed it worse than the first test. It was terrible. I mean, it was after all of this study and all of this work, E 497 got the best of me. So after 10 weeks, 10 weeks of a 16-week semester, I had to surrender. Put my hands up and said, I can't do it. W497 won. In a sense, I lost. I quit. I did not pass that class. And in retrospect, you could call that experience a failure. 
In reality, it was a growing experience. See, E 497 happened to coincide with a time in my life where I was learning that I could trust God with anything, even school. That experience is not one that I would choose to repeat if I had my choice, uh, but I would also not give it up. I would not throw it away. I needed that experience in order to stretch my faith. I needed to grow. And our souls, like any form of life, need to grow. They are made to grow, and when they don't, they stagnate. Growth is never easy. Growth is good, but it's never simple. We say that we like growth and we want growth to occur, and we're even eager for that to happen. But are we willing to do what is necessary in order for it to occur? My parents have some lovely raspberry bushes in their backyard. We went there for a visit not long ago, and as soon as we got to the house, Jared and Jesse took off down into the backyard where the raspberry bush was, and they picked a couple of dozen of these raspberries. They brought them into the house, and we consumed them. They were phenomenal. They were the ripest, juiciest, most amazing raspberries I'd ever eaten. You see, growth is good. But in order for those raspberries to grow, my folks had to plant or buy the plant, stick it in the ground, take care of it, make sure it had enough water, and then they had to keep the bugs and the bunnies away from the berries. There was work involved there. Energy was expended to ensure that growth would occur. But my parents chose to do the things that were necessary so that their children and grandchildren could enjoy the taste of sweet summer raspberries. Growth is never easy, but growth also comes at a price. We clearly see it when children are going through pairs of sneakers every season. The price of that can be staggering. It's ridiculous. But parents look at that. They look at these growth spurts and they acknowledge that the kids are are getting bigger and that these growth spurts are good. They just do come at a cost. You know what else growth spurts come with? Pain. Ask any kid. They come with a degree of pain. Leg cramps, calf aches, headaches, loose teeth, lost teeth. All of these are signs of growth, but are also opportunities for pain. Ask any kid. They'll tell you. We don't, it's not fun. We don't enjoy it. But growth does often happen that way. It comes through pain and suffering. We want to grow, but we want growth to come easy. Right? We want to eat the raspberries. We just don't want to be bothered with all the planting and the watering and the weeding. The problem is that growth doesn't happen that way. That's just not the nature of growth. It's the same way with our souls. We, want, we talk about wanting to grow. We talk about wanting to take next steps on our spiritual journeys and wanting to be shaped into the image of Christ. But we want other things too, don't we? We want relief from stress. We want time away from the nonstop activity on the job or even at home. We long to be filled not to be hungry. We want to be free from pain, free from suffering, free from conflict. But the problem for our souls is that we can't have it both ways. We can't thrive in our relationship with God if our lives are built around pain avoidance. Growth never happens when we consistently choose the path of least resistance. I mean, how can God carry us through a storm if every day is filled with cloudless skies? How can we ever learn to lean on him if we never allow ourselves to experience anything that might stretch us? We can't. And so it is that God will, at times, allow us to experience things that we would otherwise choose not to experience. He will prescribe for us paths that we would not choose for ourselves. In the final final chapters of Soul Keeping, Orberg describes, something that he calls the dark night of the soul. And contrary to popular belief, this has nothing to do with Adam West, Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, or any other actor that has played the dark night on the silver screen. Right? We're talking about the dark night, N-I-G-H-T, not K-N-I-G-H-T. Boy, that went over like a lead balloon. All right. <laughs> it looked good on the... Uh, I'm just telling you, it looked really good. Now, the dark night is actually a phrase that was coined by uh, jo- Saint, uh, John of the Cross, from, who was a 16th century monk, who had devoted his life to reforming the church, but his attempts were heavily criticized, and he ended up in prison. It was there in confinement with his dreams lost 
that he wrote his most famous work, The Dark Night of the Soul. It is an account of how God works to change us, not just through joy and light, but through confusion, through disappointment, through loss. The Dark Night of the Soul, as he described, as he described it, is not, is not simply the experience of suffering. It is suffering in what feels like the silence of God. It's important to distinguish this concept of a dark night of the soul from self-inflicted suffering. They are not the same thing. If I make choices, sinful choices, that go against the revealed will of God given to us in Scripture... It should be no surprise to me at all that I will suffer the consequences. If a child chooses to mock their parents in public, it should be no surprise to that child when consequences are brought to bear upon said child. If I decide to go against the law, rob a bank, or do something, that, something crazy like that, it should be no surprise to me when consequences are brought to bear in my life. For you, if you are talking about your neighbor behind their back, if you're gossiping about your neighbor, it should come as no surprise to you when that friendship dissolves. These are not dark night experiences. They're simply doing something wrong and paying the price for it. It is the embodiment of you reap what you sow. You see, God's law was given to us for our benefit, for our good. If you read Psalm 119, it is filled with 176 verses that talk about how good God's law is. Here are a few of them. Joyful, joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. Verse 93, I will never forget your commandments, for by them you gave me life. He goes on to say, truly, I love your commands more than gold, even the finest gold. Each of your commandments is right. That is why I hate every false way. Your laws are wonderful. No wonder I obey them. Finally. Your laws are perfect and completely trustworthy. I can count on them. When we go against God's law, when we go against his word and suffer the consequence, suffering the consequences of our own sinful actions, that is not a dark night. But again, as Ortberg wrote, the dark night of, of the soul is suffering in what feels like the silence of God. And it was that phrase that really got to me. Suffering in what feels like the silence of God. It really took my breath away when I read it. And I found myself dismayed at the thought that God would allow me or any of his followers to go through something such as a dark night. The description left me feeling cold. Alone. Abandoned. Sad. But Jesus clearly tells us that he will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us. So what are we to do with this concept of a dark night? Is it biblical? Do the people that we read about in the Bible go through anything like this? Well, as we read through the pages of the Old Testament, we can clearly see many heroic men and women of the Bible had dark nights. One name that immediately comes to mind is Job, a good, godly man whose life was devastated by the loss of his material wealth, his family, and his health. The story of Job begins with a description of how Job tried his best to live a decent and honorable life, a life that was pleasing to God. But in a sudden turn of events, God permitted Job to lose everything. Job's wife weighed in on his plight in Job 2.8, where she said, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity after all this stuff has happened? Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Great advice. I, I, I'm guessing just... Off the top of my head here, she did not go to the University of Encouragement. I don't know where she went to school, but, you know, that's rough. That's rough. But Job, he could have given in at that point and said, no, you're right. Absolutely. But he didn't. Instead, Job says this. He says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Great question. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Is God only God when things are working in our favor? When we're getting all the breaks and things are looking up? Is he not also God when things are the most bleak and dark in our lives? Over time, Job's friends do a monumentally poor job at trying to console him in his dark night. Job expresses his frustration in, in chapter 23 where he says, My complaint today is 
it's still a bitter one. And I try hard not to groan aloud. If only I knew where to find God. I would go to his court. I would lay out my case and present my arguments. He goes on to say towards the end, I go east, but he is not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I, look, I do not see him in the north. I look to the south, but he is concealed. This is a dark night of the soul. Another name that comes to mind is Joseph. A young man sold into slavery by his brothers. A man of integrity who refused to dishonor God in the face of incredible temptation and spent 12 years, 12 years, locked away in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And I suspect that Joseph, on more than one occasion, wondered where God was. This is a dark night of the soul. Why would God want Job to suffer? Why would he want Joseph to suffer in this way? Why would he want me to suffer? More than that, why would he prescribe a season of suffering where I cannot sense his presence with me? I mean, doesn't God have my best interests and our best interests in mind? We know that Romans 8.28 says, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose for them. Why would the same God who loves us set our feet on a path of pain? Well, maybe because he knows it's precisely what we need at the time in order for our souls to find their worth in him and not in other things. Perhaps God causing everything to work together for the good of those who love him is a reference to God working everything together for the good of the souls of those who love him. And I wonder if when we read that verse, our minds go to the place of thinking about the other parts of us, our mind, our body, and our will. And we think God will work things together so that we can be in the best physical circumstances possible. Or rather, that God will work things together so that we will be in the best emotional situation imaginable. But if we really are souls who happen to have physical bodies, isn't it much more important that God work things together for the good of, for the growth of, for the improvement of, for the betterment of our souls? I think so. That's what our best interest really is. God does have our best interests in mind, the best interests of our souls. Well, why else might dark nights be necessary? Well, in part because our souls are a little bit like a toddler with a half-empty bottle of Hershey's chocolate syrup. They have this, imagine this toddler, he's got this bottle, and it's half-empty because the rest of it is on his hands and his face. And his clothes and his hair, it's everywhere. Little kids are notorious for one thing, being sticky. They, they just, they, they get into everything. Now, imagine that you take this toddler and you dump a bucket of confetti on top of them. What's going to happen? That confetti is going to stick itself to every part over every crevice imaginable in that boy's body. Everywhere. Our souls are just like that toddler in this way. They're sticky. They're sticky. We, our souls have a nasty habit of getting stuck to everything under the sun. Food. Entertainment. Relationships. Careers. Even good things. Things that are positive. Like serving. Like our families. These are good things. But our soul can get stuck on them. Even good things like music. Consider the worship songs that we sing here at Southfield. These are good songs that we use to express our love and our devotion to God. Yet it is possible for our souls to even attach themselves to the music itself instead of God. We hear the beat of the drums and enjoy the thumping of the bass or the guitar or the voice or the keys. And our sticky little souls attach themselves to the music and the beat of the music instead of to God who the music itself is designed to honor in the first place. Our souls are sticky. The reality, though, is our souls are designed to attach to God, nothing else. So for as much as we don't like the idea of dark nights, the reality is that dark nights develop trust in us. Both Job and Joseph waited for God to act and waited and waited 
and waited. Maybe you're there. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. Waiting on God. Straining to hear his voice. Aching to feel his touch on your weary soul. You may not have lost as much as Job did, but you may feel lost. You may not be in a physical prison in the same way that Joseph was, but you may feel trapped on the inside. What do we do in these situations? We wait. We remind ourselves to be still and know that he is God. We ask for help. We ask others to pray for us. And we let go of our need to rush through the circumstances because we know we can't run in the dark, in the middle of the dark night. We let go. We trust in the goodness of God because he is good and he is God. In a nutshell, we learn to trust. You see, there's something that happens during the waiting. Something changes. Listen to the words of Job in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job is making an expression of incredible confidence in God in the worst of the bleakest, worst experience that that you could imagine. The man lost everything that he had. Listen to the words of Joseph in Genesis 50 as he responds to his brothers. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended what happened for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Another incredible expression of confidence in God's purpose and in God's plan. These two souls had been refined through their dark nights, and they grew in ways that were truly remarkable. Dark nights help us develop trust. There's another dark night that we should consider. It happened in a garden. Outside of Jerusalem, at night, after dinner, before the betrayal was complete and before the denial occurred, there was a dark night. And in that night, there was prayer, intense prayer, an intense, urgent seeking after God. And before the suffering of the cross, Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He poured out his request to the Father, saying, my Father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And in uttering those words in the darkest of dark nights, Jesus' own soul demonstrated a mastery over his mind, his body, and his will. His soul was so well kept that in the moment of truth, his, he, his will was literally brought to the breaking point, but his soul did not crack. The answer to that prayer Silence. It must be this way. There is no other way. In Matthew 27, we read that from noon until three, darkness came over the land. It was almost as if the darkness of the dark night extended into the next day. In the very next verse, we read that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he he was dying on the cross. Shortly thereafter, Jesus died. His body died, but not his soul. Three days later, we once again see Jesus, but this time in a different garden. This time it's daytime, and he's standing by an empty tomb because it's Easter, and he's alive. The dark night was not the end. It was the beginning. Our dark nights are not the end. They're the beginning. Sometimes God will prescribe paths that we would not choose for ourselves. He is the doctor. We are the patients. He knows what we need in order to grow. The question is not, is God a good doctor? The question is, are we good patients? If God gives us a prescription, are we going to take it to the pharmacy and get it filled, or are we going to leave it sitting on the counter? The choice is ours. For the past six weeks, we've been talking about how we are the keepers of our souls. And it's true. We are the keepers of our souls, but God is the director of our steps. He is the growth doctor. In our lives, we are going to be presented with options to choose growth or to choose atrophy. The question is, are we good patients? Part of what being a good patient requires is patience. Waiting. Waiting on God. 
choosing to trust him. And since being a good patient requires us to make right choices, let's talk about choosing for a few minutes. A few weeks ago, I was at Green Lake with our students. On that trip, I had the opportunity to talk to them about a number of different things. I had an opportunity to teach. And on that day, we talked about choices. We talked about paths and doors. The room we met in had two doors, a door on the right and a door on the left. On the way into the room, the students could go through whichever door they wanted to. It didn't matter. And they were in and out of those doors probably about 100 times before we started. But once we started, once we got rolling, I challenged them to carefully consider which door they would exit the room from because the paths that lie on the other side of each door couldn't be more different. I went on to provide them with some some details about what lay beyond each door. The door on the left, your left, led to a path that was pleasant. Along the pathway, there were things that would be nice, perhaps a jet ski, who knows, maybe a boat, maybe a house, maybe money, maybe success, maybe fame, maybe power and influence in the world. All things that are good, to be sure, all things that any of us would want. But there was one problem with the door on the left. I told them that at the end of the path was death. See, Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that appears right, but in the end, it leads to death. The door on the left represented choosing to live for themselves and getting what they could out of this life. It represented living for the world. The door on the right was different. The path behind the door on the right involved making sacrifices that they might not be comfortable with. It involved uh, maybe not getting a jet ski. Who knows? But more to the point, perhaps a loss of friendships. Perhaps it meant they wouldn't have as much power in the world as they wanted to have or influence as they wanted to have. But the good thing about the door on the right is that the end of the path leads to life. Matthew seven thirteen to 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. The door on the, on the right represented giving up their lives for Jesus. It represented living for God and not just for themselves. Now, I've lived long enough to see what happens when students pick the door on the left and when students pick the door on the right. Many of the students that I, ta- I taught down through the years chose the easy road. They are living for this life right now, today. And that makes me sad. Others, however, have made a much wiser decision. They chose the door on the right and are still making that choice day after day after day. I gave our students some first names, real names of real students who had made real choices with these doors. And you literally could hear a pin drop in that moment. From there, I challenged them to make a choice. Choose a door. Right, Right or left? And it was, uh, I also offered them the option to, to just stay and ask questions if they had them. Every single student got up and walked out the door on the right. It was, it was really cool to see. It was a neat moment. But now we come to the here and now. Because today we're not talking about the choices that our students made. We're talking about the choices that we are going to make. You see, choosing a door at Green Lake in a physical room is easy. But choosing to live life by choosing the right door every day, well, that's a little bit more tricky, isn't it? Becoming a Christ follower is a decision. Being a Christ follower is a lifestyle. It is a commitment. Being a Christ follower means choosing the right door day after day after day after day. The doors at Green Lake could easily be labeled choosing Christ or choosing self, and the same could be true of us today. Choosing Christ means choosing to grow. It means choosing to not stand still in our faith. It means choosing to not only identify next steps, but to take them. And since growth often involves pain, it may mean that we have to endure some things that we would really rather not. It may even mean that we have to experience a dark night of our own at some point. But the refining and improvement of our souls is more important than our comfort. You know, there comes a time when when all the talking is done, and it's just time to decide what you're going to do with what you've heard. 
Over the last six weeks, we've been talking about this idea of our soul being the stream and we're the keeper of the stream. And after it's all been said and all been done, it really boils down to this. What kind of a keeper are you? What kind of a keeper am I? What kind of keepers are we going to be as church? Are we diligent? Or are we haphazard in keeping the stream? Are we determined to keep the waters pure or are we preoccupied with tending to the other chores of this life? Are we attentive or are we disinterested in the well-being of the village? The time for convincing is done. The time for choosing is today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Let's choose wisely together. As a church, let's make choices that honor God together. Let's talk to him. God, we choose you. We choose growth. We choose obedience over disobedience. We trust you, and we know that that is really, really important to you. Teach us to trust you more tomorrow than we do today. We believe that you are God, and we trust that you are good. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to move into a time of communion now. And uh, as the the servers come, you'll be presented with a tray, and in the tray is a bread and a cup. Go ahead and take both, and use this time to uh, think about the sacrifice of Jesus. There's going to be a song that will be playing in the background, and it's it's a song that talks about how uh, God is there in the challenges, and many times we opt for sunshine and rainbows, and life isn't always sunshine and rainbows, uh, but those are also often incredible growth moments. So. Enjoy communion together. You believe.
Father, we know it'd be really easy to come to you today and ask for the nice things in life, the cushy road, let nothing be difficult, but that's not how we grow. We know growth isn't easy, and we know that although we ask for growth, we, again, we don't want to take that hard road, but the great men in the Bible, they never settled for the easy road, and the greatest of them all died for us. God, help us to get some perspective as we go throughout this week to focus on the message that John gave us this morning and allow us to to grow, to find that growth that we long for, to grow closer to you, but help us to, again, find that perspective that maybe you're, you're allowing us to go through a dark night so that we learn to lean on you. Father, I pray this on your name. Amen. Well, this morning we've got, a, as our servers come to receive the morning offering, we've got some announcements for you, and the first of which is a student announcement. The next two weeks, Refuge is off, partially because the, our high schoolers uh, are leaving for Omega on Wednesday morning, so we will, again, not be meeting uh, for the next two weeks for Refuge, but on August 5th, we are going to the Brookfield Zoo uh, for a scavenger hunt, all right? It's going to be a really good time. We're actually putting together ourselves, uh, but the thing with that is that we need to know an exact number of um, students that that are going so that we have proper transportation and all that stuff. So on your way out this morning, in between the double doors, there are invitations. So if you have a junior hire who didn't bring home an invitation or wasn't there this Wednesday, go ahead and grab one of those. Uh, And the the cool thing about this invitation is we actually told them that they can just flip it around. And once you have all the information yourself, they can throw the name of a friend on here, throw a stamp on it, and slip it in the mail and uh, invite an extra friend that way. So I ask uh, the we have an RSVP by August 1st, so it gives you a little time to throw that on the calendar. But again, just need to know uh, that the kids are coming. Uh, this Friday night, we have an awesome opportunity for our guys to get together and hang out, play some board games. Uh, we have, again, a lot of stuff going on. I, I know that our high schoolers would love to be there because, actually, we just... Spent some time uh, a couple days ago playing a game called Settlers of Catan, and I'm telling you what, uh, we, we are hooked on it, but we'll be playing at Omega. So uh, go ahead, uh, if you are a guy and you like the spirit of competition, go ahead and uh, come hang out this Friday at 7. On Saturday morning, we have a prayer breakfast, so from 9 to 10.30, you can meet here, enjoy some food, and spend some time uh, praying for the church, praying with each other. Again, there's power in numbers, so go ahead Come out and join us uh, Saturday morning for a really awesome uh, time of reflection and prayer. Now, we have uh, our, our baptism service coming up, as I said. Uh, we're going to be doing things a little differently this year. We are going to be meeting here for the service. And I know that's disappointing for some of you because, you know, you like the service under the pavilion. But if you wanted to have that service remain the way that it has been in the past, you would need to climb up into the ceiling and rip all of our speakers down and all that kind of stuff. Because all the stuff that used to be transportable is now incorporated into the building. So we are going to take advantage of this awesome gift that God's given us, have our service here, and then meet at 11 at Four Rivers for the baptisms. Right afterwards, we'll have our picnic, as usual, uh, underneath the pavilion and get to spend some time together doing that. So again, I encourage you, if... You are still interested in uh, getting baptized. We've got a long list of people. It's going to be a really great week, uh, or really great Sunday uh, to, to do that. So please, I encourage you, if you have any questions at all, uh, shoot it our way, because we'd love to have you be involved in that day. Now, today, after, after the service, we are heading to Culver's again, and I was not able to make the trip because I had to uh, mess around with some student stuff last time, so I am literally locking the doors in five minutes. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we have... 
We're going to get over there and get uh, flood culvers again, just like we did a, a few weeks ago. Again, that was just a, a really cool week. Uh, so if you are hungry, which I know you are, head on down, head on down the road uh, to Ridge Road and hang out with us at, at Culver's in Manuka. It's going to be, again, a really delicious Sunday. Uh, now, as I said before, my dad's not here, and he still has some things for us. He has our soul-keeping exercise for us, and we've been going through various uh, things throughout the summer. So he's given us the challenge of solitude, slowing, stare, screen control, song, and smile, um, all these things which have some have proven to be easier than others. Uh, but again, he decided not to take the full Sunday off, and he's delivering us our soul care challenge via video. Well, unlike Shelley's highly creative and incredibly professional videos, mine is kind of cheesy coming to you straight from my iPhone. I'm giving you the what will be the third to last of our S's in the soul care exercises. So far, we've done solitude and slowing, taking some time to stare at something beautiful and majestic. We've talked about screen control, having a song that sings to our souls, and last week, we took some time to smile. So where do you go next? Well, one thing your soul needs is rest. And for rest, we're going to use the word Sabbath. What is Sabbath? The Sabbath is a day that we choose to set apart for God. I think it was last fall that we did a series on taking some time to set aside a day that we don't do our normal activities. We don't go to work. We don't do all the things. Instead, we dedicate it as a day to the Lord our God. Now, I know that may be a really big jump for you right now. It would take a lot of rearranging of your schedule and your activities. So what I'd like you to do this week is to just think through, can you build in some moments of rest? Sometimes that you, you walk away from the normal activities of life and just let your soul rest in God and enjoy being God's child instead of doing something? Is there something that you could set aside this week that you were planning to do, that you've got to do, and instead you just want to spend time being? I'll tell you the way I'm fulfilling it. I'm not here today. I'm, I'm down in Springfield with Kim's family, just enjoying a day off and away, and I got to admit to you, it wasn't easy. I want to be there. I want to be there doing this live. I don't want to be sitting on an iPhone talking about this, but we need those times that we withdraw. We withdraw from the activity of daily life and just spend time resting in God's presence. So figure out a way to add some Sabbath rest to your week. Uh, it may be helpful you to go back and, and listen to the podcast. It's on there. You can go back and listen to the series that we did on, on Sabbath and how you actually take a day each week to rest in God. But for you, maybe it's not going to be a week or a day right now. Maybe it'll just be an hour or a half day where you set aside your normal activity and say, I want to be with you, God. I want to just enjoy being. So, Hope you enjoy your day. I don't think Brian's left the st stage. He's still standing here staring at me. How you doing, Brian? Uh, he's going to go ahead and dismiss you now. We'll see you. If you have my dad's number, please give him a text or a call this afternoon and ridicule him for uh, not following through on the thing that he's calling you out to do. Because, again, like I said at the beginning, uh, he woke up at 4 a.m. and came and did all the chairs. So he's not taking a Sabbath today, and I want him to know on the podcast that, yes, he again, is telling us to do things that he's not doing himself. So, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to be moving out soon. Uh, <laughs> no, if, uh, if you would, that's, that's all we've got for you today. So find, uh, find some time to, to take some rest and, and find your Sabbath. And with that, you guys can enjoy your afternoon, and we'll see you at Culver's. Oh, and I'm sorry, Revive, we are meeting. We'll do it. We'll give you a chance to go to Culver's. So, one, one o'clock, all right? Cool. Thanks. Have a nice Sunday.